0: Rebecca Radiel here just a quick note to say thank you to everybody that's been rating the podcast on iTunes and everywhere else it means the absolute world and I'm so grateful for all the five star reviews keep them coming please that would be wonderful additionally if you do fancy helping support the podcast, helping make it even better. We do have a Patreon account now and that's patreon.com slash killing underscore time and you can there become a Bow Street runner or a super sleuth. It's up to you. Anyway, on with the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments in our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Redeal and I'll be your guide. Sit back. Relax and listen as we journey into Episode 5, The Game Is Afoot. Written in less than three weeks by a 27-year-old doctor named Arthur Conan Doyle, a study in Scarlet featuring a detective called Sherlock Holmes and his assistant Dr. Watson changed everything, although not straight away. It wasn't until the stories made their way into the Strand magazine in 1891 that their popularity exploded. He may not have been the first fictional detective, but Sherlock Holmes became by far the most famous and has shaped the way we view crime and those who solve it ever since. But what is it about human nature that attracts us to stories of crime? Why do we yearn for the macabre? The cultural history of crime is a history with many tentacles, reaching to literature, art, film, media, and even medicine. To unravel this multifaceted history, I'm joined by award-winning actor, filmmaker, writer, and the genius behind the hit TV shows Sherlock and Dracula, and one of my personal favourites, Martin's Close. Mark Gatiss, thank you ever so much for coming on to this brand new podcast, Killing Time. Usually with these episodes, we focus on one crime per episode. But when we were communicating about this, you said, why limit ourselves to one? So that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you for being here. First of all, I want to talk to you about, well, I guess your interest in gothic stories and detectives and crime. How did it begin?
1: Gosh. um, Well, I mean... It's partly a very familiar story of any of us who are interested in the outré and the bizarre um, have a sort of similar backstory, don't you? I mean, it's the sort of thing that parents or relatives would always slightly shake their heads about and say, what's, what's the matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can trace certain things way back. The first horror film I saw was The Brides of Dracula when I was four, and I was instantly obsessed with horror I knew everything about hammer movies for a, for a long time I could quote chapter and verse of hammer particularly and um, so I had all kinds of books on the Fontana book of ghost stories and the and those herbert von Thal um, pan book of horror things like that. I, I devoured all hmm. those sorts of stories um, and then obviously a lot of Classic stuff. I remember the 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 story that has stayed with me forever is um, "Man Sized in Marble" by E. Nesbitt, which uh, mm-hmm. is about some um, Crusader statues coming to life. And it, it it's the, the first few things you ever read like that that they just don't go away. I think they're rattled about in your head for the rest of your life. So things like that, I was um, just crazy about it and, and you and you you know you can't really explain what it is can you it's it's sort of like you saying what well, why do you like tomatoes why do you like the color blue you just go well I just do <laughs> so yeah, yeah. something appealed and I suppose then hand in hand with all that I was very interested in crime and I was sort of equally addicted to TV shows. There was a great programme in the 70s called Killers. Yeah. Which is famous trials dramatised. And then there was one called Lady Killers, which was about women murderers. And then there was one called Lady Killers, which was about men who killed women. I think that's actually how they defied the three The three <laughs> series. But a courtroom drama with the rope at the end of it was just absolutely meat and drink to me and so I became extremely interested in true crime I suppose and I read a lot of those as well and it's one of those curious things where you uh you realize gradually that you're not the only person in the world (laughs) and then then you start to discover that there are other people with interests like that and then you have to sort of start slightly turn the the spotlight inwards and think, why am I <laughs> interested in these things? Yeah. And and then again in a similar way, I would say you can't really answer. To me it's a it's a sort of strange combination of things. It's the for me definitely the period element. My friend Rory Kinnear is is also very interested in murder, but he's oh, Okay I define myself as a classicist and he's a modernist. <laughs> <laughs> he's interest, right. he's interested in really bang up to date murders.
0: He played Lord Lucan, didn't he? He did, a yes. Few years yes. ago,
1: I think that's a bit old for him. I
0: think, oh, but, um, right,
1: okay. Um, I like them with stiff collars and bottles of arsenic, and he <laughs> he's interested in more modern murders. But um, it's been a whole afternoon talking about it. Once, in which he said, you know that it's still the same thing. You know, it's just horrible things happening to people. <laughs> it just because they're wearing waistcoats doesn't make it any more palatable. I said, I know that. <laughs>
0: Uh. (laughs) it's very true but I do think part of it and I, I suspect this might be the same for you given your back catalogue of television shows, part of it is the detective work, isn't it? You're trying to figure out that, you know, could I have done a better job than, than they did? What are the clues? How can I follow this case along?
1: Yes, Do you think that's fair? I, yes, I, yes, absolutely. And funnily enough, um, it's so much part of the British DNA, I think. It's not an accident that Britain is the home of the Golden Age detective story. And again, casts a very long shadow. A friend of, friend of ours was um, on a jury a few years ago, and was astonished, I love this, it's like, a, it's like the beginning of something, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> she was astonished that when they got to the jury room, two ladies in the jury said, we don't think he did it, we think it was the brother. <gasps> and the foreman of the jury said, this isn't midsummer murder. <laughs> you- we, we we are here to try try this person based on the evidence not because you don't you, you're second guessing the police so um i think it's got very deep in us the desire to um, to solve crimes definitely that's
0: hilarious
1: yes i love it
0: <laughs> we think it was the brother <laughs> let's go back to how the reality differs from the um I don't want to use the word romance, but it kind of is. It's kind of, it's oh, the, mythologized. No, you, that's,
1: you can use that. That's that's the great term. The romance of crime, it's a very real thing. And, yeah. But it is very different to reality.
0: My period of history that I study is the 17th century, and it's only towards the end of this that you start getting mass-produced documents detailing trials that have been happening at the, the Old mm. Bailey. So obviously these are real cases, but they are very salacious, and they're very graphic in, in the details, and they're designed, these pamphlets to shock and people gobble them up and love them. But then this crime literature kind of grows throughout the 18th century. But I just wondered if you had an interest in the the way that um, crime has been, let's use the phrase, romanticised over the years.
1: I found this when I was researching Martin's Close last year, that that uh, even the layout of the courtroom is different to what we expect it to be. And, and you you know, we we take an awful lot of things for granted, which are, are actually quite recent. Uh, the mm-hmm. idea of having a sort of defence counsel rather than just standing up for yourself or, or just being expected to plead guilty and things like <laughs> yep. that. I found that all very interesting. And I suppose, as with the rise of the detective story, that it's not until things become slightly more formalised that there is a sort of literature around it. Do you know what I mean? The Those court transcripts and everything, as you say, they're, they're sort of built to be penny pamphlets to get the public salivating but mm-hmm. the idea of it actually becoming a kind of formalized case that you could actually study and investigate or I mean that's that's I suppose, what Ellis Peters and uh, people sort of invented was the idea that the the detective has always been with us which is sort of not true but if it's obviously great fun to sort of project that back into history and go there's um William of Baskerville etc Mm -hmm. behaving like a detective. But it it sort of needs the rules in order to work.
0: Just in case there's anyone unfamiliar, Ellis Peters was of course the pseudonym of the author behind the Catfile novels, and William of Baskerville was the main character in Umberto Echoes' The Name of the Rose. Both works were written, interestingly, in the late 20th century, and both works, interestingly, were set during the medieval period, long before modern policing.
1: I always think if people aren't really aware of the idea of Someone being framed for murder or or a false alibi or stuff like that. It's sort of. I mean, I think it's very a very enjoyable idea, but you sort of need the formality of the world we know. I think to make it sing. It's not. I don't think it's an accident that that the golden age of crime is sort of twenties, thirties, forties because it's so ripe with that, isn't it? It's almost. If if it's not the wrong word again to use, there's a sort of blossoming of domestic murder and and lots of sort of suburban passion and, and all those sort of Thompson and Bywaters kind of areas that just seem so ripe for it. It's almost like uh, a murder waiting to happen. It's rather a good title, I might write that down.
0: <laughs> write it down, write it down. And, yeah, credit this podcast and, and make the, the podcast huge. Um, no, I'm joking. But you're right. I, I think that's a really good point that you raise, that it needs to be f- formalised, the procedure and the policing. And obviously, towards the end of the 17th century, early 18th century, There was no such thing as as police. Oh Well, most of the 18th century, we had the Bow Street runners. But yeah, you're absolutely right. So let's move move on then, I suppose, to the age when crime started to be written about. And obviously, Wilkie Collins looms large when it comes Mm. to, you know, writing a detective story. Could you talk a little bit about him, perhaps, and also the Sherlock Holmes books, which you are very, very connected to as well?
1: Well, Collins is credited as... Was basically the the father of the detective story with the Moonstone. There's always a new claimant, isn't there? Every year, someone uncovers a a magazine story which is actually predates it by about six months or something like that. But obviously, it was the first major hit to sort of bring a mystery together like that with an investigating policeman, and it casts an extremely long shadow. Um, and then Poe as well, Edgar Allan Poe, mm-hmm. with uh, Dupin And uh, Doyle's, uh, Conan Doyle specifically, um, you know, refers to him. And in fact, this is a rather funny thing. Stephen Moffat and I always talk about the amazing sort of postmodern joke, of Sherlock Holmes slagging off his competitors in his first story. And then he starts reviewing his own cases immediately. It's, it's an amazingly modern piece of thinking, you know. Dr. Watson writes them down and Sherlock says, I, I glanced at it, I thought it was rubbish. <laughs> God, that's amazing. No one's ever done that before. So um, I suppose those are the sort of beginnings. The form has yet to become set and formalised.
0: The Moonstone was written by Wilkie Collins and published in 1868. It follows the story of the disappearance of a rare diamond and pulls in themes of imperialism, opium consumption and tainted aristocrats. It was also unique in its use of red herrings and untrustworthy testimony.
1: The Moonstone is is clearly the, the, the beginning of, of the detective story as we know it. There is a sort of um, a strong red herring element. You, you sort of, you're, you're blindsided by the twist. It's the beginnings of it all, but it, it's obviously not the detective story as we know it. Mm-hmm. And then with Sherlock Holmes, Doyle makes the the breakthrough thing of of, of doing um, reg- serialised stories about the same character. Uh, the first two Holmes books didn't really do anything, but it was when he started writing short stories that it became a sensation. And the idea of, of writing, a, as it were, a story of the week for a familiar character, uh, a serial became you know the, the biggest part of it. The interesting thing, I suppose, about Sherlock Holmes is that the deductions are a huge part of it. But they're rarely the sort of engine of the the main plot. In fact, because Doyle, they're terribly difficult to do, and Doyle sort of stopped doing them after a while. He just, you wouldn't look at Sherlock Holmes story the way you look at Ag- Agatha Christie and go, "Oh, that's that's clever. That's yeah. that's the you know that's a big twisty reveal or something like that." They're much more about, I suppose. Small domestic crimes, or the unusual, I suppose, aren't they? And 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 Sherlock himself is the sort of element of strangeness. He's an odd man, and it's impossible to uh, underestimate the the influence of that character on all subsequent detectives. All detectives are a line drawn from Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson, and everybody inverts them, subverts them, tries to do something different. Um, but you know doyle literally wrote the book and it's uh, it's impossible to escape that you know that you you cannot imagine detective fiction without sherlock holmes and um everybody lives with that for, forever i think you and then you get to that um i love i love the sort of almost sort of semi desperate f- sort of floundering of like well, I don't know, my, my detective is Welsh and um, he he has a head in a box which solves the crimes <laughs> for him all. Uh, uh, there are four detectives, all brothers, and none of them can speak English. And, oh, I don't know, uh, they're made of steel. <laughs> you know, there's nothing, nothing that people haven't, absolutely nothing that hasn't been done. But then that's because of the genius of Conan Doyle and, you know, Agatha Christie, explicitly says you know I wanted to make my detective as far away from him as possible and and she she literally sort of goes I don't know um tall and thin okay short and, short and fat um <laughs> foreign um he, he, he uses psychology, he doesn't use de- deduction. In and that's that's the way everybody sort of has to view it, I guess.
0: It's interesting, again, when you look at the things that you've done. So yes, Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes do loom large when it comes to the detective. But then also you've been associated recently with the Dracula <laughs> <laughs> programme. And again, that's the defining vampire as well. So that's interesting to me. But just going back to Sherlock Holmes, there was obviously a real life Man around in the early 20th century that the press often used to claim was the real life Sherlock Holmes. And this was Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who was um, a forensic pathologist. He was often called up during trials and cases to give his expert testimony. And because Mm. forensic pathology, I think, at that time was in its infancy... There weren't too many people that were able to question what he was doing and what he was saying. So he was, as I say, part of the Crippen trial. There was another case called the Brighton trunk murder case and then he was drafted in a few decades later to be part of Operation Mincemeat. But he made lots of mistakes. Yes. And (laughs) Yeah, I just wonder how familiar you are with Spillsbury and um, as a man and the work that he did at the time as well.
1: Well, as you know, the the actual basis of Sherlock Holmes was a man called Joseph Bell, who was Doyle's tutor. Right. Who could do it? That's how he learned the trick. He could tell when a patient walked into his consulting room, he could tell what was wrong with them by looking at them and he could tell them what their trade was and and Doyle took that whole idea and sort of systematized it. It's just it's just the most wonderful idea, isn't it? You, it's like a magic trick. Mm. But Spillsbury, I guess the Criffin trial made him, didn't it? And the and and I suppose in that sort of news-hungry environment, then you have a kind of star pathologist, you know, he's the Quincy of his day. And people would have leapt on that, I guess. And the expert witness became a very, very sort of attractive figure. But, uh, I mean, in that amazing way, you, you don't know whether he he was sort of genuinely preeminent or whether he was sort of pushed forward by events I think there's a strong element of him enjoying the limelight and becoming the kind of um, the star expert uh, in all the most famous murder trials. It must have been a very alluring place to be. So, um, yeah, I think he's a very interesting figure. And I suppose there's, you know, inevitably you look back. I mean, I watched that. uh, There was a documentary on Channel 5 a few years ago called Was Crippin Innocent? Mm -hmm. And I watched it with my arms folded. I, I saw it <laughs> advertised, I thought, no. And I watched it, it was, I don't know if you saw it, it's genuinely extraordinary. They were heavily calling into question Spilsbury's evidence, uh, but not just that. Something that never occurred to me, and it really is quite striking. Why, why, having disposed of the rest of his wife, would Dr Crippen bury one bit of her in the cellar? And it you know, never occurred. I thought, you know, that's the most bl- blindingly obvious thing. Yeah. Why? And because they were even questioning whether the human remains were even female, which is mm. possible to tell from this instances. But, you know, the, the whole idea of of that evidence hanging him is, is, um, is, I think, somewhat in doubt now.
0: Yeah, it's hard, isn't it, when you have that. As you say, this one expert, just as an aside, a few years ago when I had my other career as a TV development person, I went to... Um, I can't remember whether it was Christie's or some somewhere anyway, they were auctioning Spillsbury's autopsy notes and there's this fascinating little kind of box that was in the room when he he took his own life didn't he and every single card like it was packed full of hundreds and hundreds of cards and every single card had probably about 10 or 12 cases on each side of autopsies that he'd uncovered uh, he'd he'd conducted i should say and it's just such a fascinating snapshot of early 20th century life and death and all these lives i mean there's um, crimes of so-called crimes of passion that were happening in parks between two men and things like that and it's just it's just interesting to uncover these these histories.
1: Well it's like it's like um, I did uh, some monologues for BBC2 in 2017 for the 50th anniversary of decriminalization of homosexuality and um, the sad fact is that most of the history is because of the police. There are these amazing snapshots of, of raids and things and if it wasn't for that, there'd be nothing at all. There'd, there wouldn't even be oral history. you know. And, and I suppose you just have to think, well, through terrible circumstances, you do at least get a sort of little snapshot of things. And, and as you say, those kind of densely packed private notes actually speak volumes about people's actual real lives, which, which you wouldn't get from a sort of dry history, I suppose.
0: The other thing that you mentioned was... Um poisonings and Mm. obviously that crime poisoning as a as a mode of murder um is very gendered isn't it the history of it
1: oh sherlock holmes says it's a woman's weapon that's that's what he says i suppose there's something talking about the romance of crime there's something very victorian isn't it 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 sort of it sort of fades out a bit as you get into the, the 20th century it feels sort of something that involves ridged blue bottles and um, the poison register and all those sort of things, I suppose. But um, mm. but yes, it was. it's interesting the whole Florence Maybrick area and how many sort of unhappy marriages were sorted out by a trip to the chemists. Who knows? And that there's another, oh my God, there's another one uh, which loomed extremely large in my childhood, which was mary Cotton.
0: Oh, yes, that's a case, and, isn't uh,
1: it? Yeah, we used to, there was a skipping rhyme when I was a kid. I don't know if it survived... Well, she used to sing at school. It went like this: "Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and she's rotten. She lies in the grave with her eyes wide open." <gasps> Yet, mm. oh my God. And what they said was that she boiled wallpaper down to extract arsenic from it to to kill off the three hundred <laughs> members of her family that she <laughs> needed to knock off. But yes, as a classicist, it's always appealed to me (laughs) as the method of choice, yes.
0: It's interesting, just some statistics here for listeners. So between 1832 and 1901, 30% of all murders committed by women named poison as the weapon, which is a very high amount. That's Um, amazing. Yeah, when you consider and I won't go into this because it's so so tragic and sad, but when you consider this was a time when infanticide was rife, so there was a lot of that going on, but to still have 30% of all murders using poison as a weapon. The other thing to say as well, and I, I don't know how you would define notorious here, but the most notorious, according to one study, cases of the 19th century involved murder cases, involved women between 15 and 34 who'd used poison to kill. Um, so there's something that going on there, isn't there?
1: Is there something about the availability of poisons that suddenly changes? This is this. I'm sure someone's written a huge learned study on this, but that's that's very interesting. Whether something something became suddenly much more accessible in the home, or whether it's to do with home life itself and how people were set up i don't know isn't that interesting isn't
0: it, it is and they, and you're right i reckon there is something to do with the accessibility of it because then you get these um criminals such as christiana Edmonds, who in the 1870s she used she procured poison from her local chemist under the pretense that she was going to use it to kill off rats or cats or something yeah. but then she laced this poison in confectionery which she took to a, a local shop and um allowed it to then be sold on to other customers. And obviously people, people perished as a result, some children as well. Wow. So there is something about that. But then you also, if you go back into the way that medicine was viewed and the way that people viewed the human body, women, this is before the age of modern medicine, women were viewed to have cold, wet bodies. <laughs> they were, you know, they, they were drippy and wet. But because of that, they were viewed to have characters that were more calculating. So women would more often be charged with murder as opposed to manslaughter, whereas men, with their hot mindsets, they were more prone to manslaughter. So there's something, wow. there's a load of different things kind of coming oh, into yes. play when it comes to that. And stigma, I think, that's still with us today about this kind of the archetype, of a a cold and calculating woman using her, you know, sexuality, I suppose, to entrap men and things. Yeah,
1: It's the Scarlet Woman, the Scarlet Woman, isn't it? And that is a huge sort of tabloid desire to to frame people in one particular way or the other. It it doesn't seem to go away. It's a very familiar sort of frame, that. It's like there must be something more to it. There must be something going on. People are sort of... They're sort of looking for something in the dark corners, aren't they, to to join the dots and make it fit a, a very sort of comfortable pattern, I suppose. Whereas, in fact, real life is just very messy. Mm. My late brother-in-law was a policeman and um, I remember when I first got to know him, I said, as a huge Christie fan and everything, I said, do you ever, ever come across a murder that is in any way, you know, like one? Of those? And he went, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, and, you know, most people are killed by someone they know in their home. And it's usually a moment of madness, or something.
0: It is to those moments of madness that we'll venture in the second part of this two-part special, when Mark Gatiss and I will dig deeper into post-war crime through the cases of Neville Heath, Rillington Place, and many more.